Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our Advent series. But before we get to that, we want to take this moment to invite you to come and to, to worship with us. There's a lot of things going on. We're at December of 2023, and it is a time of celebration as we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On December the 24th, we have a Christmas Eve service. It begins at 4.30 in the afternoon. It's a great time as we just simply sing and read some scripture and spend a few moments just slowing down so that we make sure that we're ready for this great celebration. So we'd invite you. We meet at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And if you have any questions, you can contact us through our website, calvaryfayetteville.com, our email, info at calvaryfayetteville.com, or you can call at 479-442-4634. Now, again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is talking about Advent. We're in a series entitled All About Advent, or A3. And today we're looking at the when of Advent from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So let's listen together as we learn a little bit more about Advent. We are in a December series called A3, all about Advent. And so we are celebrating and recognizing Advent as a church family as we do each year between Thanksgiving and Christmas Day. And you may be wondering, what's all the big deal about Advent? You know, candles and counting down Sundays until Christmas Day. A lot of times people have the idea that Advent is just another word for Christmas, but it is more than that. We celebrate Advent to get away from the idea that Christmas, the celebration of Christ's birth, only deserves one day on our calendars. For the most part, the only anticipation and celebration even many professing Christians have in regards to Christmas in our American culture has to do with personal indulgences of food, of festivities, of gifts, of shopping, and oftentimes by the time we get to Christmas Day, we're just beginning to get kind of tired of all of it and ready for all of it to be over with. Oftentimes, it is everything but the celebration of a Savior. Certainly, our Lord deserves more than one day of our energy and our attention. That's why we spend a month on Advent, the idea of anticipation not just of Christmas Day, but of a Savior and His arrival. I find it especially ironic that when it comes to professing Christians, that even in the area of financial giving, of our tithes and our offerings, that oftentimes, and you find this almost across the board in churches, that financial giving takes a nosedive in the month of December. I mean, after all, we have so many other things to spend our money on rather than 
our tithes and offerings. So we rob the king of glory, the one who came to give us eternal life, and the one whose birthday that we are recognizing and celebrating. Not only our tithes and offerings, but people get so caught up with all the trappings of Christmas that the Lord's house often goes neglected. Now, in case you're looking around wondering where so-and-so is and so-and-so, and um, we do have a few people across the way. Being sure that your lunch is going to be ready today. So this one day out of the year, we give them an excused absence. But just today. So we're in the season of Advent. It's time supposedly to slow down to remember the first coming of Christ our Savior. But also to anticipate a second Advent. Advent is not just about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's also about what could happen at any time. That is the second coming. That's why we say that we today live in the time that we might call the already, but the not yet. You can read more about that on your worship guide, the already and the not not yet. So Advent simply means coming. That's the most basic meaning of the word. I like what one dictionary says. We mentioned this last week, that Advent is the arrival of a notable person. And in this case, the most notable person in all of history. And so we look to Galatians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul gives us about three or four verses in the context of a larger discussion to these Galatian believers about what it means to really be a follower of Christ. And so he says in Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, these words, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, these four verses or so are going to provide us, I think, with everything we need to know to understand Advent. They teach us all about Advent. Last week, we focused on the what of Advent, exactly what is it. And within that context of those uh, verses, verses 4 and 5, we focused on the five words, God sent forth his son. That's what Advent is all about. Today, we want to focus on the first eight words of verse 4, where it reads, but when the fullness of time had come, that's when God sent forth his son. But when the fullness of time had come, our emphasis today is on the when of Advent. Jesus 
friends, is the door of all history. He is the doorway of all history. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus was speaking of when he said that he was the door. But when it comes to recorded human history, he is a threshold. He is a door. He divides our calendars. He divides time, B.C., before Christ, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. I realize with modern historians and educators, they don't like to talk about B.C. and A.D. because it acknowledges Jesus Christ and his coming. So they've come up with B.C.E., before the common era. And they look for some ways to take God out of the calendar picture altogether. But all history revolves around Christ's coming. He is the door that separates time for us before his coming and after his coming. And if you take that analogy even a little bit further, I want to suggest to you he is the door, and that door turns on the hinge of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's why he is the door, and not Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great, or some other prominent person of history. Only Jesus was raised from the dead. He was the God-man, the only God-man that ever was or ever shall be. And that's why history turns on him and his resurrection. The Old Testament message is a message that says Christ is coming. Even from the Garden of Eden all the way up to the very end of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, 400 years before Christ came, there were pictures and analogies and promises and prophecies about a Messiah who was going to come. All the Old Testament uh, message is that Christ is coming. In the New Testament Gospels, we find declared Christ has come. Christ is here. This is the birth and the story of his life from four different perspectives. Not four different truths, but one truth from four different angles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament Gospels declare that Christ came. And the New Testament letters, the epistles, those books written by uh, Paul and Peter and John, these New Testament letters proclaim that Christ is coming again. So understand, all of the Word of God focuses on Jesus, focuses on who He is. He is the centerpiece of all humanity. So it's important to understand that here we stand, or here we sit, between the two advents, the already he came once, and the not yet, he is coming again. And so this season, we celebrate both in anticipation. The when. The Bible says, when the fullness of time had come. That's when God sent forth 
his son. What does the fullness of time mean? Well, if you go to the Greek language and you do word studies and you research it, you find that fullness of time literally means what it says. It means that which fills up. It means the full measure, the full extent, the full number. What it means, as Paul uses the phrase here, is that the first Christmas was perfectly timed. It was perfectly timed. It wasn't a day too soon. It wasn't a day too late. The first coming of Christ was perfectly timed. Now, I don't know about you, but I have thought before, could there not have been a better time for Christ to come? Could Advent have taken place at a better time? As someone might say, could there be another time that might be more advantageous? Now, that'll sink into some of you, probably about 10, 15 minutes. Try not to laugh out loud because someone might think you're slow. There is no more advantageous time for Christ to come than at the time in which he came. Now, I've often thought, what if he came today? Wouldn't that have worked out better? I mean, after all, look what we have in the way of communication. He, we have TV. We, we have satellite communications. We've got radio. We've got social media. I mean, it could be all over Facebook and Instagram. And we've got cell phones. And our phones have cameras in them. Have you ever noticed nobody carries around a camera anymore? No, wait a minute. We all do. On our phones. I mean, instead of slow, plodding word of mouth, especially when you consider the questionable words of shepherds, those low-life guys, you can't depend on anything they say. And not only that, but then you have the wise men from the east. They're weird anyway, aren't they? Spend all their star time stargazing. And then you have people singing his praises. Elderly, half-senile old folks like Elizabeth or Simeon. And what about the angels? How do we know they were from God? They might have been demons in disguise. You know, I mean, wouldn't today be a better time? I mean, after all, the camera doesn't lie. While we're on the subject, 2,000 years ago, he was born in a barn. A barn, actually a, a cave, basically. Talk about unsanitary. Joseph and Mary were really just two homeless young people. Everything about this would not fit our culture today, but, but wouldn't today be a better time? I mean, after all, a camera crew could go charging into the maternity ward of a modern hospital and beam pictures of the newborn Savior all over the world in a matter of minutes, and the, the responsibility of sharing the gospel wouldn't be left to us. I mean, it could be just right there for everybody. Wouldn't today be a better time? But the Bible says, which means God said, that the fullness of time was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. 
That was the perfect time for the first Christmas. Let me give you three words that'll tell you why I believe it was the perfect time. First of all, that was the time preordained. That was the time preordained. Sometime, and that's even the wrong way to say it, sometime in eternity past. Eternity past is when there was no time. Sometime before time was invented. Sometime before man walked this earth. Sometime before there was this earth. Sometime before there was a universe. Sometime when there was nothing. And sometime even before there was nothing. Because even nothing is something. Sometime when there was God, it was decided that Jesus was going to come to earth and that time was going to be preordained. He, Jesus was going to invade time and space. The time, the place, the circumstances were fixed. Now, how do I know that it happened like that? I know it happened like that because the Bible tells me so, and that's the only evidence that you can trust and believe. Any other explanation is some kind of imagination of sinful man that is bent on leaving God out of the picture altogether. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It was not an afterthought of God. It was not a reaction on God's part. It was just as he had planned. The time was just right. The time was just right culturally. Believe it or not, the culture 2,000 years ago was the perfect time for the coming of Christ. If you want to look at some of the practicalities, consider this, and you historians know this to be true. The Greek Empire, which had conquered the world uh, previous to the coming of Christ, was now gone. But the Greek Empire had left its mark, an indelible mark, on the history of the world. The world had become more united. It had become more educated. But more than anything else, the Greek Empire had left a language. Coiny Greek, a language that became the, the language of the day. Now, there were still many, hundreds of other languages, but you could go virtually anywhere in the world if you spoke the Greek language and you could get by wherever you went. Why? Because it was the trade language. It was the common language. And not only that, it was an amazing language, amazingly accurate Far more accurate, far better than our English language is. That testifies to the fact that why in our English translations of the Bibles, 
we find so many variations because the Greek is far more precise and we struggle sometimes to find the right English words to bring that thought into our language when our language is not as accurate and not as, as good. It was the language that these apostles used to preach the Gospels and to write the New Testament. So culturally, it was the right time for the coming of Christ. Politically, it was the right time for the coming of Christ. The Roman Empire or the Greek Empire had given way to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was at its height, and though very ungodly, though very idolatrous, though very pagan, Rome had advanced culture in many ways. They had conquered the world. They had given the world good roads, a relatively fair system of government, and most important, they had given the world Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And for the first time in history, people could travel with relative ease and safety. The apostles could carry the gospel to the entire known world and plant churches because of the Roman Empire and its existence. Not only was it the right time culturally and politically, it was the right time spiritually. Now the Roman Empire, the world was diverse, but it was open. Almost any kind of worship was allowable. Rome did not did not prohibit any kind of worship just as long as you recognized Rome and their gods and their emperor also. But many of the philosophies, secular philosophies, had begun to give way. Among the Jewish people themselves, did you know that the Jewish people, ever since God called them out of Egypt, they had been an idolatrous people. Even when God formed them as a government at Mount Sinai, even as Moses was on the mountain receiving the commandments and the word and the law of God, the people of Israel were at the bottom of the mountain forming a golden calf and worshiping it. When they got to the promised land, they continued to worship the idols of the people in that land instead of driving them out. They had lived in gross idolatry, and because of that, God had scattered them, and God had sent many of them into Babylonian captivity that gave way to Persian captivity that ultimately allowed those who wanted to to come back home to the promised land. But understand this, after Babylonian captivity... By and large, the Jewish people had given up idolatry. They had returned to the law. And they were deep into it. And they were finding deeper interest in it. The reason John the Baptist had such a following out in the wilderness was because people were seeking truth. They were seeking the Jewish people to hear from God. Many of them had, had gone deep into orthodox law keeping and making up their own laws to the point that they didn't just have the Old Testament laws that God gave, that a righteous Jew, a Pharisee in Jesus' day, had 613 points to the law, most of them man-made, but at least 
They were not worshiping idols. They were seeking to worship the God of the Bible, but they were missing the mark. So many things were ripe and ready, and that's why God sovereignly determined that this would be the perfect time, that there would be never a more opportune time, that this was the fullness of time because God was guiding all these things to that doorway of history to that door that's going to be Jesus Christ and his birth. Not only was it preordained, <clears throat> understand it was prophesied. It was prophesied. God had told them it was coming. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, even down to the details of where he was going to be born, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, I love this phrase, from the ancient of days. The ancient of days became that little helpless baby that would be laid in a manger in a little bywater town, not even really a town, more of just a, just a dusty, dirty little village for people who could not afford to live in the suburbs of Jerusalem. This little place called Bethlehem. And lest it be confused with any other Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, this is where Jesus would be born. Folks, listen to me. Talk about the prophecies did you know that there are at least 456 prophecies that you can count in the Old Testament that are relative and are applicable to Christ's advent? Now, not all of them are his first advent. Some are his second advent. But all of these prophecies are, are, like, are like dumping out of the box the pieces of a very complicated jigsaw puzzle. And you take these prophecies and you begin to fit them and find the pieces and where they fit. And you discover that really there is a decryption key that will help you. Just like, can you imagine having a, a, a jigsaw puzzle that had no picture on the front? You just had pieces? Now you could eventually figure it out maybe but, but the picture on the front, if you're like me, you do this. You're constantly looking at what it's supposed to look like. And there is a decryption key. And understand that the New Testament is what helps us understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Old Testament that gives us these truths, but they come to us. Some of them prophesy the first coming. Some the second coming. Some emphasize his glory. Some emphasize his suffering. Some are just very detailed comments like Micah 5, 2. But the New Testament helps us see as we look backwards the picture of the Old Testament prophets. Now there is a, a, a professor. There was a professor. His name was Peter Stoner of Westmont College. And he undertook the task of figuring out the probabilities, the probabilities of Jesus of Nazareth 
being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He took 600 students to help him do this. And they came from 12 different classes that he taught. And they reduced down the conclusions so that even the most skeptic of all the students would finally agree and discover that the probability of one person, of one person fulfilling just 48, not 456, but just 48 prophecies, the odds of one person in history fulfilling 48 of the prophecies, these are the odds, if you can imagine it. It is one out of every, and I don't even know what to call it, but it's the number 10 followed by 157 zeros. You got a much better chance of winning the lottery than that. I know you wouldn't play the lottery to prove it. I don't want to encourage you to do that. But understand that it's almost impossible. Now, Dr. Stoner's calculations were presented to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation for review. And after the American Scientific Affiliation examined all the information, the committee verified that the calculations of Dr. Stoner and his students were dependable and accurate. Now, to help us get a picture of that, this is what Dr. Stoner said you would have to do. If you could take those odds, those odds of probability, and you took that many silver dollars, 10 with 157 zeros following it. And you took those silver dollars and laid them across the state of Texas. You would be approximately two feet deep in silver dollars. And if ahead of time you had taken one silver dollar and marked with a permanent marker an X on the back and put it in the mix of all of that. And then if you were to take a blindfolded man and he could walk as long as he wanted to walk in any direction he wanted to walk in the state of Texas, and if he bent down and picked up the silver dollar with the black X on it, that's the odds of someone fulfilling these prophecies. Jesus did. Folks, understand. By the way, Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish scholar, said that it's proof that Jesus fulfilled over 400 prophecies from the Old Testament. Now, beloved, I want to tell you, when people say, I don't believe in Jesus because we just can't prove that he was the Son of God, you've got more evidence 
of Jesus being the Son of God than you do of Abraham Lincoln being the 16th President of the United States. You've got more verifiable proof of Jesus being the Messiah than George Washington being the father of our country, our first president. You have more evidence for Jesus Christ having lived and walked on the face of this earth, being the fulfillment of the Son of God, the only Son of God there's ever been, than any historical fact that you think you know. You have more assurance of Jesus being the Messiah then you have assurance that Arkansas let Oklahoma beat them in that basketball game yesterday. You just do. You just do. It was prophesied and it was fulfilled. Third word. It was preceded. Preceded. One of the prophecies that recurs about the Messiah is that there's going to come one ahead of him who is going to pave the way for his ministry. And the books of Mark and Luke both emphasize very early, at the very beginning of their gospel account, of one by the name of John the Baptist. I'm glad he wasn't John the Methodist, aren't you? Or John the Church of Christ, or John the Catholic, or John the... Now, understand, he was not a denominational man. He was a baptizer. He was John the baptizer. And he came. He was born six months before Jesus. And evidently, they were cousins. He was the one chosen by God. The Bible said he too was a miracle from God. For he was born to a woman far beyond childbearing years. Also, he was born, and the Bible said he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Filled with the Spirit of God from even before he drew his first breath. He was the one chosen to announce that Jesus would be the Messiah and to announce uh, who the Messiah would be. And that day, there along the Jordan River, somewhere in that that forsaken part of the country because it is a place, not on a main road in a metroplex, but off in a bywater place where he was preaching. He declared, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was a fulfillment of prophecy and he was helping to fulfill prophecy. God had perfectly engineered everything to prepare the people to receive his son. The time was right. The language and the roads helped facilitate the news. An empty religion created a hunger in the hearts of people for what he came to do. And a messenger came beforehand to announce him and declare him. God planned the redemption of humankind. At just the right time, God sent his son into the world. The time of his incarnation, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection from the dead, all of this was a time of completeness, a time when God fulfilled his promises of the Old Testament. Do you believe that story? 
Do you believe that Jesus came in the fullness of time? Would you agree that the Father knew what he was up to? That the Father knew everything, that nothing occurred to him, that he didn't have to react or respond to what man was doing. He was engineering everything. And he engineered all of human history to bring it to this point in time. Do you believe that? If so, let me ask you a question. Here's the application. If you believe and trust that God knew what he was up to regarding Advent, then why do you and I find it so hard to believe and trust God, what he is doing when it comes to our lives? Why are you so prone to doubt as I am when he doesn't answer prayer in your timing or my timing? Why are we so prone to doubt? Why are we so prone to get frustrated when things don't go the way we think they ought to go? When God doesn't move when we think he ought to move? when it seems like God is looking the other way when it comes to your life and your prayer. For your children, for your grandchildren, for your job, for your career, for your life as it has been up until this point. Why is it so hard for us to trust God with those little details of our lives when we see God's hand so perfectly at work engineering all of human history and guiding it to the fullness of time. A perfect God doing a perfect work in the perfect time. Well, my friend, listen. It hasn't changed since then. God is still a perfect God doing his perfect work in your life and in mine. And he has a timetable. It's not the same as ours. He is a God that doesn't need our schedules and all of our demands. You can trust him. We can trust him. In this Advent season, if the God of the Bible can be trusted to speak truth to us in and through his word, then he can be trusted with the details of our lives. And always remember that when it comes to our lives, God may be slow, but he's never late. He may be slow, but he's never late. He's right on time. So Father, we thank you for that truth. It gives peace comfort to our hearts. It causes us to, to marvel that you could engineer and guide such world-size events to bring to pass your plan. And Father, help us realize that what was the same truth then is the same truth today. That we can trust you, that you're guiding that you're carrying out your plan for us 
in this world. I pray that you'd help us trust that fact this Advent season so that we would not be fretful, so that we would not be anxious, so that we would not be so consumed with worries and busyness that we can trust exactly what you're doing. And we'll keep on praying, we'll keep on obeying, we'll keep on following you and allow you to fulfill your plans in our lives as you see fit because whether we allow it or not, you're going to do what you want to do with us. Help us to bow to your plans. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.